It is July the 30th, and we're in our fifth lesson from our study on the conscience. And we will look uh, this morning at 1 Corinthians 8, 7, just briefly. I want to get through all these related verses from 1 Corinthians. And then as I shared at the end of our class last week, um, I came across um, a list of practical principles that we employ. Uh, we can use as a guideline when we're looking at uh, different behaviors. We're evaluating whether or not we should do this, be there, say this. All these different things that come into play when we consider our own behaviors, our own conduct, our own, as it says, our walk, as you often see it translated in the Word of God. And we'll get there. Uh, we'll get there toward the end of the lesson today. When we look at, we're looking at Corinthians 8, 7, I'll just read it to begin our lesson this morning because it in, uh, includes uh, the word conscience. Paul says, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. We went back and looked at that whole scenario there where you had people who were saved out of paganism and so forth and went through the whole thing about the meat being offered to idols and then being sold in the market and how people would go to uh, uh, normally an unbeliever's home or someone who would have this meat there and then somebody, uh, a young Christian, a young person in the faith would just be mortified that that was being served because it represented to them what they had been saved out of. And uh, a person who's truly born again, you know, right there at that time when they know they've stepped from death into life, that the Holy Spirit has made that change Go back there in your own experience and, and remember that. Remember how dynamic that was. What was, you know, it was very, very easy then to distinguish good from evil, left from right, dark from light, and so forth. It was a very intense time. These people said, man, I can't go back to that. I can't have any association with that. Well, and then you have a mature Christian, um, someone who understands it, hey, man, they, there's no real God down there at that pagan temple, and this meat is meat, there's not a problem, and their conscience does not bother them on eating that. And they, they're kind of you know, kind of at a loss, perhaps, as to why somebody wouldn't enjoy that, without thinking about their brother's sensitivities, without thinking about that, and understanding that that is their primary responsibility at that point, to nurture that individual, to not offend that individual to not insist upon their own rights and liberties if you will and how big of a problem is that in our society today i mean that right there pretty much dominates people does it not i mean we live in a me society do we not we do me myself and i and that's not the christian life that's not what we're brought about uh, brought to christ for no we're to be noticeably different in that regard. So he says, you know, that person, if they give in being weak, the weaker Christian, their, uh, their conscience is defiled. And that's a strong word. And it just, it puts over its original language, it puts over this, this picture of being soiled, of being dirty, of being unacceptable. This is what this person would have been feeling and experiencing in their conscience. By the way, you know, what strengthens us to associate, and I'll just say it plainly, with pagans. What strengthens us to do that? We have to do that. Christ is not taking us out of the world, has He? 
No. We're here for a purpose. Salt, light, okay? That's what we're here for. But what strengthens us to be able to associate, to work with, to live around, to do what we do, not if you work for the church, but in other places, you know, with worldly influence and so forth. What strengthens us to do that? And you're saying, duh. Well, answer it for me. What strengthens us to do that? Right. Absolutely. Loving the, putting the Lord first. Loving His people. It's knowing what God commands of us, but also having the right expectation on the pagans. Yeah. Because you can't expect them to act the way the, the Bible commands them to because they don't have the power to do that. Can't do so it. So if you lower that expectation and look at it as a mission field as opposed to judgmental and prideful and all that, yeah. Then we're a lot closer to the, the example yeah. of Christ. Did. What's the number one thing in your mind that we're usually accused of as believers when we're trying to share our faith and the necessity of faith in Christ and repentance? What are we most often accused of as believers? Self righteousness, holier than thou, uh, hypocrite. Yeah, we're not, uh, oh, that key word, tolerant of others and so forth. I, in my. Um, Work, you know, I'm, I'm a government employee again, and uh, we have to, by mandate, both from the city and our own law enforcement requirements, require us to look at diversity every year and to do some kind of training. And I was looking at a, you know, a, a program online that we were uh, going through. We have to do, and you know, and it, this, this thing is telling me, you know, about how I'm to to uh, look at others and whether they're regarding their sexual orientation or whatever it is, and I'm to be accepting of that and so on and so forth. And it'll say, now, you don't have to adopt that for your own philosophy, but you have to accept that, okay, in the lives of others. Well, I accept it as a reality, but that's about where it stops. Because the Word of God tells us that we can't give what would be the tacit approval, okay, to those kinds of uh, commitments and philosophies in the, in the lives of people. Why? Because it is uh, directly opposed to the Word of God. So back to my original question, and you answered it right, it's knowing the Word of God, knowing Christ's claim upon our life, and then being more concerned about the individual. And we ought to be able to take a little bit of the roughness that's coming our way, right? We've got to be able to take some of that. It's to be expected. The Word of God would tell us to expect it. They persecuted me. Christ says they'll persecute you. Paul talks about that. goes on about his persecutions and all the, the, the pressures and the trials that he has. And he talks about just a number of things. And I love it. He adds at the end. And above all that, he says the care of the churches. So we can't, we can't escape this kind of thing. Even in your personal walk in life, even when you're trying to just minister to people, be a godly influence of people in your own families, in the workplace, and wherever else, you can expect some opposition because there is a war going on. There is a battle. And you may say, well, how does that all relate to this? It all starts at the smallest level. It starts where people are trying to decipher and discern what is right and wrong. Here we're talking about a young Christian, okay? But it's the same with folks who, who don't know Christ and who are struggling with the Word of God in their life. 
And I like what Jeff said. We need to be aware of that and know that it exists, that that's the world that we live in. And it's never going to change. It will never change. So we need to warm up to it. I say it'll never change. It won't change in this life. It won't. So, a writer in the book regarding this particular verse says, uh, his little commentary here adds, he says, when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God, thus defile their moral conscience, which is oversensitive because they are misinformed. They don't know everything that they need to know. Even though the act in itself is not morally or spiritually wrong, it becomes wrong when it is committed against conscience. We know that. We could go back to... Uh, Romans 14.23, we saw, you know, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. We go back and look at those verses there in Romans where Paul was dealing with the same kind of thing. So I'll leave that. We went through that. 1 Corinthians 8.10, 1 Corinthians 8.10 continues and says, For if anyone sees you have knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols. And I focused there on that word initially, encouraged, and it means just what you think, to be built up inside, to be edified. You'll often see it translated emboldened, okay? And it just brings to mind, as he says, that we who have knowledge over a particular thing, first off, have a caution in the Word of God. What also does knowledge have the capacity to do? What does I'm not going to be able to phrase this so that you'll even know what I'm talking about. Ah, smart class. Okay. Yeah, knowledge knowledge puffs up. It does. We don't need to forget that. That serves as an initial part, if you will, of our checks and balances system. Because so many times our natural tendency is because we know something, we're committed to something, then we charge right in headlong, don't we, and start you know, perhaps spouting out commands and dictates, you know, from the Word of God and so forth. When all of these, these verses here, these examples that Paul gives both in Romans and Corinthians tell us that we're, that's not what we're to do. We are to consider the other person. We're to be thinking about them and their needs. And it's great that we can bring knowledge to the table, that we can help, help folks. But patience is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, is it not? And that is what is required here with people. In fact, if you look in the Word, and I'm not prepared to dig into this, but I know from previous study, there are basically two words in the New Testament that talk about patience. One is patience with people. It's a different word. The other is patience with circumstances. I mean, it's that specific. To be patient with people because we understand the great potential that's within everybody. Now, particularly new believers. We don't know what God is going to do with anyone. We don't know. We know what He's done with us. And we don't need to forget that and forget that great potential that's there. We need to give attention to the individual. Well, he talks about that. He says here's the idea that if anyone sees you who have an informed moral conscience on the issue... Or in other words, that you know that there are no real gods but one. Eating in an idol's temple, if you do that, if you're eating in that temple, won't that person's misinformed moral conscience be emboldened to sin against his own conscience by eating food sacrificed to idols? Our, our example is very uh, significant. Uh, our influence as a believer 
is very significant, particularly in the lives of young Christians and people who are new in the faith. Yeah. And even so, many times with people who maybe they've been around a while, maybe perhaps they have been in church for a long time, maybe even serving, but we don't, we don't know where that person is in their particular knowledge and commitment. We don't know that. We don't know that. And we have to be patient with folks and make sure they understand the truth of God's Word. Bring them to the point where their, their focus is the Word of God. It's not even you and what you say or your experience. It's what the Word of God says because that's what binds us together is the truth of God's Word. So this verse continues to explore that. So look at 1 Corinthians 8.12. And he says when we do that, the narrative continues. He says, Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak. What is the result of that? He says plainly, you sin against Christ. Now, we need to get that in here, okay? Tremendous amount of responsibility there. And the tendency, like we said, it's because we have knowledge, we have experience on something, you know, is maybe to be a little more bold in our response to individuals than we should. Okay, not considering that where that particular individual is, we sin against a brother. We wound them. I looked these words up. And of course, it's that general word when we're talking about sinning. It's to miss the mark. We don't want to miss the mark in regard to our relationship with younger, impressionable believers. We don't want to do that. We do not want to err. We do not want to sin. We do not want to commit a trespass in that regard. We don't want to be guilty, as it says, of wounding their conscience. And it means it puts up the idea of offending someone. It even... Uh, it, the picture is the, uh, of beating. It's something that's severe. It's beating on the individual intellectually. Yeah. If you think about a wound, it's like physical harm to something. And conscience is the ability to tell right from wrong. You're physically harming their ability to tell right from wrong yeah. by doing that. Yeah, that, that's the crux of, of the whole thing. And that forced me to kind of look at this word a little deeper because... <clears throat> I saw there what it is in in, uh, the original language. It refers to an incident with, as it says, repeated blows. Okay, so my my first thought was, as I looked at that, oh, well, you're talking about someone who, because of knowledge perhaps, just keeps pounding someone with this truth. Like the more they pound it, the more they declare it. Hey, finally, they'll see the light, okay? That's really not what it means, if, if I understand this correctly. It refers more to the continual impact of what you said and how you handled it. You understand what I'm saying? So the emphasis there goes to the point that our words are very important. Even if we've come at someone only only one time, that the impact of those words will continue. So why do I make that point? Hopefully that will make us think and double think and triple think about what we say and will help us to make sure that when we're, when we're dealing with people in opposition or someone just uh, uh, younger in the faith and so forth, that we'll take time to consider where that individual is and specifically the impact of our words because our influence is a big deal. It is. 
And we're the church, and God is going to work through us. I made a note here as I was looking at this. Um, I added the only time that I don't mind being guilty of inflicting someone with the truth is when it is not me, but the Word and the Holy Spirit doing it through me. That's two different things, okay? And then I put parentheses except for child discipline. I'll just throw that in there. (laughs) But that's what we need to think about. You've heard that the Word of God and that people who minister the Word of God are to what? We're to comfort the afflicted and do what else? To afflict the comfortable, (laughs) okay? But it's not us. It's not the teacher. And it's not the individual Christian who has knowledge, it's the power of the Word of God in their life as the Holy Spirit magnifies that and uses the truth of His Word. So our continual guide, we find that back in Ephesians 4.15. I think we've mentioned this verse in each of our four preceding classes. We are to speak the truth in love. You can have that knowledge. You can have it. But if it's not motivated by love to the point where we take the time to examine our words and to make sure that our words, though filled with the truth of God, exude, drip with the love of God. Okay? What does the word say? You know, our our wrath, I'll paraphrase it, our wrath doesn't, provide God's judgment. It doesn't. Mm-mm. Not our wrath. It doesn't do that. We can come across as angry, demonstrative or whatever. That doesn't enhance the power of God's Word. I say back off. Do what the Word of God says. Present the Word in its truth. Present it clearly and plainly and let the Word of God do its work. Lord really doesn't need my personality. He needs it to get out of the way. He doesn't need that. He needs faithfulness. That's what He needs. And He needs commitment to the Word of God. All this, all this is done as He says. Uh, and when we do it, and we do it in error, He says we sin against Christ. We sin against that brother or sister and we sin against Christ. All sin is against God. Okay, we can sin against others. We can sin against our own body, the Bible says. But all sin is against Christ. And Christ will take care of His church. I don't want to be in that position, do you? I don't want to be guilty of having done that. If we looked at verse 13, He says, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again that I might not cause my brother to stumble. Put that in there for us to contemplate just for a minute because again, it reflects Paul's commitment here. It shows that his focus is upon the right thing. And he refers to the young believers, the young Christians in his life as his brothers and certainly by implication his his sisters. All young believers. And he knows how important this is. That their foundation be sure and that it be steadfast. So he's willing to sacrifice any level of liberty in his life for their sake. So it begs the question this morning as we examine our own heart and life, is that where we are? Do we find ourselves 
that type of servant before Christ that we truly put the, the needs of our younger in the faith brothers and sisters before us. So, um, a note from MacArthur on this. He says, we should be eager to limit our liberty at any time and to any degree in order to help a fellow believer, a brother whom we should love and precious soul for whom Christ died. That's our attitude and should be our continual attitude toward those types of things. So that takes us through the verses there in 1 Corinthians 8. And then I found this list uh, in commentary, actually. These, uh, I think there are seven uh, practical principles that I think will bring about some discussion for us this morning. We've looked a lot at the Scripture. We looked a lot at the, uh, the biblical examples about how these things are brought to light and the decisions that have to be made. So we asked the question this morning, how do we determine what is appropriate? You know, what, what has the potential of being damaging, you know, to a brother or sister in Christ regarding our own particular choices, our own conduct and so forth? And this list serves as a general guide and I think a good one to how we make these decisions and determine um, the things that we do and do not allow in our life. Perhaps you've seen it before. I've seen similar lists. Uh, but this one is from uh, the MacArthur New Testament Commentary on Corinthians. It's on page 197 if you want to go look at it even further, particularly regarding the Scripture. He just mentioned some Scripture, but you want to look those up and study them. I brought a few of them out here for you. The first one, the first element that he says when we're making this evaluation in our own life centers around the word excess. So we've got some alliteration here. They all began with an E, okay? Excess. Is the activity, here's the question, is the activity or habit necessary in our life or is it merely an extra that is not important? Is, repeat what I just said. <laughs> sure. It's the, it centers around the word excess. Okay. In other words, does it represent an excess in our life, this thing we're doing or whatever? And, and, the, and he says, is the activity or habit necessary or is it merely an extra that is not really important in our life? You might say a preference. Is it perhaps only an encumbrance that we should willingly give up? Which is it? And he mentions Hebrews 12.1 where it says, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. You'll often see that word weight, I think, translated encumbrance. Okay? It's the Greek word onkos, and it just talks about a significant bulk or significant mass, some big thing, if you will, there. I think of things that take up so much time in our life sometimes that we could just do without. Okay? And it's often something that's just innocent or something that's harmless in our life. So, and he says if it's that kind of thing, if it just represents an excess in our life, why not give it up? You know, if you're standing there balancing it out like this, there's a lot at stake to give it up. Any questions about that? Any examples that you can think of? Do you enjoy excesses in your life that might come under scrutiny 
from someone or from some young believer or whatever in your life? I think the big example in the present day is alcohol. Alcohol? Yeah. Someone would use scripture well that just says to not be prone to much. So it's okay. Yeah. Yeah, alcohol perhaps might be a, a good one to look at, and we know there are no definitive scriptures about not drinking alcohol. There are a lot of them about being drunk, okay? <laughs> That's one thing. And then, yeah, there are other scriptures in there as well that talk about alcohol and its place for those in leadership and things like that. And we see by example, you know, how, um, you know, uh, people's association with alcohols better left undone given their responsibilities and so forth. And we try to glean wisdom from the Word of God in that. Uh, but uh, an interesting topic we could look at one day, maybe just by itself. I'd be willing to do that. Got some information on that. Yeah, that's, that's one thing. Um, entertainment, yeah. Oh, man, yeah. Um, I know there's been times... Um, like in my own life, you know, um, if the TV's on a certain thing or somebody's turning a channel, you know, it's uh, not a good thing. <laughs> what is it? We don't turn the TV. <laughs> 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 okay. <laughs> or push the remote control. Okay. <laughs> That's all right. But you, you become aware of those things when you have guests in your home, maybe I should say even more aware in your sensibilities and so forth. Uh, and my point being here, if we're not careful, we all have a device where it's pumped into our house. Okay? you got to watch the commercials nowadays really closely, don't you? Downright embarrassing sometimes if there are guests in your house. And we ease up to that stuff, you know, day in and day out because we see it and we don't think nothing about it. But uh, our society has changed uh, quite a bit as far as what's acceptable and and what's not acceptable. But there are other areas where we could identify excess in our life. And um, just as a general principle, you don't give up anything in your life for the cause of Christ. I'm talking about when you're doing it for Christ, you don't don't miss anything. Uh, He'll fill your life with (laughs) so much goodness and so many opportunities for service because of your desire for obedience, your desire to be clean before Him and be molded as the Word and Spirit would have you be molded, you're not going to give up a thing. No, it'll be a blur. Let's move to the next one. He talks about expediency. We have excess. Secondly, we have expediency here. And he quotes Paul, All things are lawful for me, Paul says, but not all things are profitable or expedient, as you'll see it sometimes. That's 1 Corinthians 6.12. So it begs the question, is what I want to do helpful and useful or just only desirable? Just only desirable. Which is it? We'll evaluate it from that standpoint. The word expedient is a word that means to bear together or something that transpires for good or for profit or for advantage. Okay. And really, we make that assessment many, many times, day in and day out in our life regarding our words, 
you know, in our actions. And you can even throw your omissions and your neglects in there. That's, that's kind of what we do as believers. It's all under that general category of as, as what I'm doing today, what I'm involved in. Am I wasting God's time? Am I so focused upon the things of life that I don't see the hand of God in everything that I'm doing? And if you don't, you'll miss it. And if you truly are given over to Him in every aspect of your life, He's going to bring these things to light. And we'll be able to examine them. It'll be second nature for us to see and to think about how our words and our conduct are going to affect the people around us, whether they're believers or unbelievers. Is it profitable? Or does it represent a waste of time? A matter of expediency. Thirdly, he uses the word emulation. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked from 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. So again, who are we emulating? Who is our example? See? Do people look at our lives literally, as Christ Himself said, and see our good works in a manner that causes us to want to reap the benefits of their approval? Or does it point to God's work in our life? Does it point to His work in our life? See, who are we emulating? John says, if you claim Christ, then you ought to act like Him. If you claim Him, then you ought to be motivated by what motivated Christ. The way you respond to people should exhibit Christ. It says that we can have and do have, in fact, the mind of Christ. What an awesome thing. Think of that. The mind of Christ, us. We can have the mind of Christ over an issue. We're to demonstrate Him by our works. We are the salt. We are the light. And this is our life. This is, this is what we're about day in and day out. It's the way we do our jobs. It's the way we raise our kids. It's the way we minister in the church of Jesus Christ. It's the way we do everything. And when you lose that, you're in serious trouble. I think in the Revelation... The Ephesian church was charged with losing its first love, right? And that was the church that was strong on doctrine, right? That did not tolerate those Nicolaitans or whatever. Didn't do that. So why weren't they powerful? Why were they in danger? Why did as it says that Christ have something against them? Because they had lost their first love. What was their first love? Christ. We used to have this thing, used to hear it all the time. People used to wear it on their armbands, stamp it on the back of their cars, soccer moms. What would Jesus do? Good question. What would Jesus do? What would He not do? What would He think? What would Jesus say? This is what we're about as believers. This is what guides us. Why? Why? Because we as believers have been saved from the wrath of God for all time and eternity. That's why. 
And either we believe that and believe the mandate that comes with that about being a light in the darkness and being courageous when there's opposition, or we don't, or we're just weak in that regard. We want to emulate Him. Paul said, be imitators of me. said it two or three times. Be imitators of me, Paul said. And one time at least he adds to that, even as I am an imitator of Christ, he says. You look at my life and you see something that's notable, it better be because Christ is manifesting Himself through me. So, excess, expediency, emulation. We cover, and then example is the fourth one. And it's talking specifically about the example that our life and actions leave with others. Are we setting the right example for others, especially especially for weaker brothers and sisters? And if we emulate Christ, others will be able to emulate us to follow our example. 1 Timothy 4.12 says, in Timothy's or in Paul's exhortation and encouragement to Timothy, Timothy, he said, "Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers." And here he lists several areas: in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. I can imagine Timothy saying, well, let me write this down. Here, run through that again, Paul. Because he needed encouragement. He did. And Paul gave him this list. And the Holy Spirit of God gave it to Paul. So that's why we're looking at it this morning. And he encouraged him to be an example in word. It's the word logos. Logos. It refers to something said, a discourse or reasoning. What comes out of our Mouth, okay? Christ says it comes out of the heart. What comes out of our mouth is very important. And we are to be examples in this. We're to be guarded in this. Proverbs is filled with admonitions. I could have listed several here. And you can read them. But being careful about the words that we say. He mentions conduct. And of course, it's that word, as we've alluded to earlier, you often see it as conversation. It's certainly about our behavior, taking note of the way that we live, what we do. It's all-encompassing, is it not? Our words, our conduct. He talks about love, and it is that word, agape. That's the word he's using there, that highest form of love, if you will. The love that doesn't doesn't expect anything in return, is not based on that. We love the unlovely because we know of the, as we say, of the potential of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit in a person's life. We love and we make ourselves available for love's sake because God uses us in the lives of other people. Affection or benevolence, charity, to hold someone dear, to, to love them, to love the brethren, as he says. We're to love them. He says that the world 
will know. That's one of the ways they'll know. John says, by the way that we love one another. History even writes about it, those early Christians in that first century, how they loved one another, how they cared for one another, how they gave up and ministered to one another, departing, as it says, their, their goods and all that they have, even putting themselves at potential peril for the sake of someone else not meeting their demise for lack of monetary things or daily necessities and so forth. That's why Jesus could, could teach and say, you see a brother who is in need and you have means of meeting that need and you don't do it. He asks the question, how can you say that the love of God dwells in you? Folks, there's the standard right there. You have opportunity to do good in that regard and you don't do it. Fourthly, he mentions the Spirit. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit in our life being filled with the Spirit. It's that connotation about breath, or he says a blast or a breeze, if you will. But it is referring to the Holy Spirit in our life. So it, it alludes to the fact that we can hinder that. What can we do to the Spirit, the Bible says? What impact does our life have on the Spirit of God? What does it say we can do to the Holy Spirit? We can can quench it. We can grieve it. We can do that. That can be our response. And it severely limits us. If we're limited in our, I'll say, uh, function in the Holy Spirit, in that we become just mere possessors and we're not filled with the Holy Spirit, then we don't have all the tools that we need. We don't have all the the spiritual energy and insight that we need to be discerning and to be bold and to be timely and all these other things in our life that come to bear when we're dealing with difficult situations and we're trying to minister to people. We lose that. What causes that grief? What causes that? That grieving of the Holy Spirit. And what else did we say? Grieving and don't forget those two. Quenching. What causes that? What, what, what strangles the Holy Spirit in our life? Say it. It's three letters. begins with an S. Sin in our life. Oh, we're back to sin. Yeah. We're constantly there. Because that's, that's, that's the silver bullet. Let's just get a little of that in there in this person's attitude. We were talking about knowledge and it puffing up. A better word for that is pride, is it not? We were talking about that earlier. Just just put a little of that in there. Let that flavor the conversation or come out in such a way that it taints the motive of the minister, the person who's ministering for Christ, and now you've got a weakening of that power. You don't have it. But when we're pure in that regard, when we know that doesn't exist, first off, we can hear the voice of God clearly. We can. We can see the direction clearly. And if we're not, if we're hanging on to our sin and we're not walking in the fullness of the Spirit, then we make ourselves a target in that regard. Fifthly, talks about faith. You've seen the word before if you studied it, pistis. Our reliance upon Christ, which 
connotes a, a particular constancy, it says about this. A steadfastness. Not just us saying we have faith or talking about faith, but it's something that's visible in the life of an individual. Their faithfulness. This shouldn't be in doubt. That's the way that we are to live. Total reliance upon Christ. We, we function and we're centered around the truth of God. There's, a, there's an assurance in our life, if you will, over who Christ is. And it speaks of our particular beliefs, our own personal fidelity in Christ. Our commitment should not be in question in any way. So he adds faith to this when he's talking to Timothy. You want to live a life, Timothy, in such a way that your faith is never questioned. Never questioned. And then lastly, he mentions, and this is the sixth one, he mentions purity. Timothy, oh buddy, you got to be pure. He lived in a world like we do. Paul says, you got to be clean, Timothy. You got to be chaste. You got to be a person who lives apart from the world and the world's contaminants. We have to know how to do that, do we not? We do that by being filled, by being focused upon the Word of God. Our desire is to allow the Spirit of God to totally dominate us in our life because we belong to Christ and our life is His. It's not ours. Paul tells us twice, does he not? First Corinthians, you are not your own. You don't belong to you anymore. You don't have all this authority over your own life. You belong to Christ. You belong to Him. Your life is not your own. You've been bought, he says, with a particular price. It's been paid for you. Your life belongs to Him. Not once, but twice, he tells the church at Corinth that. I think it's easier for us to forget that in today's world, in today's economy, if you will, when it seems that the day requires so much of us for the raising of children and doing our jobs and so forth. The world puts other demands on us that are best represented by some of these other things that we talk about, You know, things that can easily be done, done away with, things that are preferences that we don't need to contaminate our life. I think I've shared with you before, but I'll, I'll bring this to bear on this point here, that where they did the survey here in the metro area about the, the uh, cities that were most uh, provided the most stress for its people. I saw this study. I don't remember what I was looking at at work. Oh, no, I know. It was an article that I was reading from back from Roswell Street Baptist Church, believe it or not. Dr. Price had written it when he was over there. He had looked at this study. The most stressful cities to live in, what would you think they are? New York, New York L.A. Uh, Las Vegas, Nevada was number one. Las yeah. Vegas, Nevada is at that time led the nation in suicides. They got all this legal vice you can do there. What do we? What does sin do? Regardless of what you call it, how it's named, what does it do? It destroys, right? Mm-hmm. Brings tragedy. Then you had New York and L.A. I don't remember what order they were in, but then you had Atlanta. Atlanta, Georgia. And that's what got my eye. And I thought, well, that's where I live. I live in metro Atlanta. And I said, why? Why would Atlanta be fourth on this list of, of the most stressful 
cities to live in. Why would you think that? And this relates to what? What? The traffic. Oh, good grief. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, you may be right. But to shorten it down, it's because of the way we're situated. It said because there is so much in the metro area and beyond to pull and draw, or as they put it in the positive, provide opportunities for recreation and involvement and all those things for individuals. And people's days are filled with this. What are we doing after work? What are we doing this weekend? Blah, blah, blah. Okay, because there is so much to do, and I never thought about that. Now, you think about it, and you, you can see, you can be at the beach, you can be at the mountains, you got all the, the uh, allurements of the city, Atlanta, and so forth. Uh, and then it broke that down and talked about the way our individual neighborhoods are organized now. There's so much, all the emphasis on the youth leagues and so forth and people being there. And we understand the benefits of those, but all that can begin to dominate. Okay, dominate. Travel ball, all this stuff that comes in, if we're not careful and it dominates us. Well, we're talking about things that come in and affect our life. I'm often looked at as a, uh, a guy who's kind of stuck, you know, because I work and I hang with my family and I work out some and I try to take care of my house and I go to church. And, I serve, and that's what I do. And I'm pretty much going to do that till I draw my last breath. And some consider that just such a bummer. Oh, it's just a bummer, okay? Because <laughs> I'm not taking advantage of this, that, and the other, you know. I hope when it's all said and done, and I hope you share with me that we can say that our life has been about Christ. Our life has been about, first and foremost, what He did for me. I don't want to ever lose that. I don't want to remember, or ever forget rather, what my life was like, or the potential for destruction in my life when Christ changed my heart, when He called me, when He set me on a different path. To say nothing of His faithfulness throughout my almost 61 years, his faithfulness, His mercy, His grace, His un, unfailing promises and provision in my life. Always there without fail. Christ. Don't forget Christ in all of this. Evaluate everything regarding Christ. Real quick, evangelism. Fourthly, or fifthly? Is that fifthly? Ask the question, is my testimony going to, going to be helped or hindered? What you allow in your life, does it help or hinder your testimony for Christ? Will unbelievers be drawn to Christ or turned away from Him by what I'm doing? Will it help me conduct myself with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity which we find in Colossians 4 or 5. That's what we're to do. That's what the Word of God says. So we evaluate it in that manner. I'll go on through these. We're about out of time. Edification is the next word. Will I, will I be built up and matured in Christ through this activity, this involvement? Will I become spiritually stronger? 
Paul told us, and we looked at this earlier in 1 Corinthians 10.23, all things are lawful, but not all things edify. Just because you can, don't mean you should sometimes. No. What is the Holy Spirit doing? What is needful for this situation? Paul made the evaluation regarding the church in Corinth, and he said, if eating meat causes my brother to stumble, I'll eat no meat as long as I live. He made that evaluation. It's not edifying. It's not worth hanging on to. I give it up. And then lastly, exaltation. Will the Lord be lifted up and glorified in what I do? Will I become spiritually stronger by this involvement, by this activity? 1 Corinthians 10.23, all things... Oops, I put the wrong one. All things... uh, All things are lawful, but not all things edify. I shared that. I read the wrong thing. Whether then you eat or drink, he says, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 And you can also go to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 17 and in verse 23. And Paul there talks about doing what we do always for the glory of God. Whatsoever your hand finds to do, do it as unto the Lord. He adds when he says, do it as unto the Lord and not unto men Make sure that your motivation is correct in that. Make sure your motivation is correct. Well, I'm going to stop right there. I wanted to get through the, the last uh, two portions of Scripture from 1 Corinthians. From chapter 10, we'll look at verse 25 and 27 next week. And then 28 and 29, there are four uses of the word conscience there and then we'll be through first corinthians okay any questions anything else